Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving to side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. But it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. As we continue in our series on the book of Philippians, we come to the point in the letter where Paul transitions from talking about himself, sort of giving an update to the Philippian church, who are very concerned about his imprisonment, and now he is transitioning to exhort them, to encourage them, to talk about their faith and help them in their walk with Christ. So this is, verse 27 is the transition. Verses 27 through 30 is one sentence in Greek with one main verb. Now this is important because often as you read scripture, we we need to figure out what's central here. What is the main point here? And the main verb here is translated, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be. Now there's a footnote, if you're using the ESV, English Standard Version, there's a footnote that gives us another way to translate it. It's a more precise way of translating it, but it it doesn't sound as good. So that's why translations typically choose something that, that sounds a little bit more accessible. But the precise way to translate that word, the main verb here in our text, is to say only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. The idea of citizenship is crucial here, and I'll explain why as we talk about the city of Philippi and the church there. So from this Greek word, we get our English words politics, policy, police, those kinds of words. Paul is deliberately using a word, a term, that describes communal life in the Greek city-state. And this idea of sort of a common knowledge in the ancient world, this was this this idea, this understanding that human good, the highest human good is achieved by people coming together, living together as citizens of a city-state, of a polis, being together as citizens, as free and equal citizens together, and working together in community, in cooperation and interdependence. So Paul is relying on this cultural idea of a Greek city, of a of a Roman city where citizenship is valued as a means to achieving the highest human good. And so he says, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul's charge to the Philippian believers. John Chrysostom, a 4th century church father who himself lived in that culture and understood this term, understood this language that Paul is using, comments on this verse. He says, all that Paul has said is for this single purpose, to exhort them to live a life worthy of the gospel. What does only mean, Chrysostom is asking to the text, what does only mean? This is the one thing looked for and nothing else. The one thing looked for and nothing else. So Paul's main exhortation to the Philippian Christian, 
Christians is to live out the gospel of Christ together as citizens of the heavenly country, in community. It's impossible to obey this exhortation alone. It's just impossible. That's not what Paul means. We are called to the communal life worthy of the gospel. This is what Paul wants the Philippian church to do, and all of us by extension, this is what all of us are called to do as believers, to live out the communal life as gospel citizens together. Now let me put it in the negative, just to make sure I get my point across this morning. You cannot live in a manner worthy of the gospel unless you live in community and partnership with other Christians. You cannot live in a manner worthy of the gospel unless you live in community and partnership with other Christians. Now this is the the main thrust of this passage. It is It is incredibly communal. None of these things that Paul talks about in the rest of the text are individual. They're not directed to individual Christians. They're directed towards a Christian community as a collection of citizens in the same city banding together to live out the gospel in community. So let's work through this passage and let's make sure we we go deeper into these concepts and understand what Paul means in practice, and we'll look at it under three headings. So this is our outline. First, let's look at our passports as gospel citizens. Let's look at our passports. So that's our first point, our passports. Next point is let's look at our privileges and responsibilities as gospel citizens. So first, our passport that gives us identity as a gospel citizen. Secondly, our privileges and responsibilities as citizens of God's kingdom. And finally, our power as we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. So our power, we'll talk about the sign, the clear sign that Paul talks about here. So our passports, our privileges and responsibilities, and our power. Okay, so Paul uses this curious language, curious term of citizenship specifically to the Philippians because these ideas make sense to them. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on Philippi. And by the way, you can even sense that, and some of these, these things are said specifically in Acts 16, where this idea of Roman colony and Roman citizenship comes up several times, and Acts 16 describes Paul's first visit to Philippi. Philippi was not just another Greek city. Now, it was in Macedonia, it was in the Greek territory among the Greek culture. However, it was a Roman colony. In 42 BC, so we're talking about probably 120 years before Paul writes his letter, the forces of Mark Antony and Octavian, Octavian was the future emperor of Rome, they won a decisive battle against Brutus and Cassius. And they ended the civil war that was prompted by the assassination of Julius Caesar. This is all in the background of Philippi as a city. Now that battle took place at Philippi. And after Mark Antony and Octavian won the battle, they released some of the veterans, some of the veteran soldiers, to settle in Philippi. This was common practice after a great victory, and uh, this was a reward. Now you can settle here, you get land here, and 
and veterans settled at Philippi, and the city thus received the status of a Roman colony. So Philippi became officially a Roman colony governed by Roman law, uh, complying with Roman customs and Roman culture. Unlike the residents of other neighboring cities in Macedonia, the Philippians were proud Roman citizens. This is very important. It was very important to the Philippians, and it's very important for us to know, to understand what Paul means when he calls them to gospel citizenship. Philippians, as it were, had Roman passports. Philippi was a Latin city, and yet it was in Greece. They modeled their lives after Roman customs. Their leaders were appointed directly from Rome. Philippi was even sometimes called Little Rome because of how similar it was to the eternal city. And so people who would visit Philippi would automatically make connections with Rome. So when Paul says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, it connects with the Philippians. Their lives as Roman citizens in a Roman colony helped them understand how to live as Christians in a pagan world. Later in the letter, Paul writes, and this is Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is operating in this very rich theme in the New Testament. The theme of our belonging to another country, desiring a different homeland. We are a community belonging to the heavenly country. This is from Hebrews 11, verse 16. And while we live here, this is not our homeland. We are elect exiles, 1 Peter 1, verse 1. We are elect exiles. We live here, but we are from a different place. We are called to cultivate a community that operates based on heavenly culture and follows heavenly laws. The church is a colony of heaven in the world. We are, as, as the church, we are little heaven here. And Paul says, live as citizens of heaven. Even though you're at, at Philippi, you're Roman citizens, you live in this culture, but live in a manner of life that is worthy of your real citizenship. Live as citizens of heaven, even though you're living here in the world. Remember your heavenly passport. Remember your heavenly identity. Remember who you really are and where you really belong. Even though they live there and we live here and we participate in this culture and we obey these laws as we should, our identity, our allegiance, our own culture is not from here. When I was in college, um, at Moody in Chicago, Jillian and I lived in an apartment off campus, and we lived in Ukrainian Village. It was a neighborhood in Chicago that was populated by Ukrainians. Now, by the time we moved into that community, many of the younger Ukrainians were gone, but some of the older homeowners were still there, and though it was the community was being gentrified and, and changing, and the hipsters were moving in already, 
But there was still enough Ukrainian culture there to make me feel a little bit more at home. We can go to a Ukrainian restaurant, go to a Ukrainian grocery store and get some things that tasted and smelled like home. There were festivals and events that were observed in that community. Every once in a while I would see somebody who was a recent arrival to America wearing a tracksuit and dress shoes, and I would think, these are my people. This is where I belong. This is my culture. This is a taste of home. Now, this is the same feeling, I think, that Paul is trying to elicit here when he talks about heavenly citizenship. That even though you're at Philippi, Roman citizens, and you understand what citizenship means, remember that your lives are governed by heavenly laws, by heavenly customs, by heavenly calendar. You live as citizens of another country, as a colony in this world. And so we all live like that. We all should live like that as Christians. What does it mean to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ? Why the gospel? Why does that become a central idea that defines our citizenship? Well, first, it is the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. The emphasis, first, I'm going to put on Christ. Our community, our colony, our our church is to live in submission to this person, this Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. It is Jesus who defines how we are to live. We are followers of Christ. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ, to be His disciple, His imitator, His student. It is His signature, His name that is in our passports. In fact, that's what makes our passport valid. It's His signature, it's His name. And so if we think about living lives worthy of the gospel as a community of Christians, We are to live worthy of Christ, of who He is. He is our King. We may have some allegiance to earthly powers, rightly so, to earthly authorities. But our primary allegiance is to a different Lord, to Jesus, who is in heaven interceding for us and ruling over His church. A story is told about Alexander the Great, Alexander was a conqueror. He, he, his whole life was focused on conquering as much of the world as he could. And he did a lot of it, though dying at a fairly young age. So the army, his army was disciplined. His army was very effective. He once met a lazy, fearful soldier in his army, which was very unusual. And so he asked for his name. And the soldier said, Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great then said, either change your name or change your ways. Change your name or change your ways. If we bear Christ's name, our lives must be lived accordingly. If we declare ourselves to be Christian, which contains the name of Christ in that designation, we are to live as Christ wants us to live. That's the life worthy of Christ, not just as a person, but as a community, as a church. Now, secondly, it is the gospel of Christ that defines our citizenship, the gospel of Christ. In the ancient world, the gospel was an announcement 
of victories. The good news is a proclamation of a victory. That's where that term comes from. And just like Philippi became a Roman colony after Mark Antony and Octavian won the battle, we became a new people when Jesus won his battle on the cross and in the empty tomb. His victory earned our new passports. Because Jesus died to remove my guilt and rose to give me a new life, I now belong to another city, to the heavenly city. I now belong to God's family. I now belong to God's colony in this world along with all the other heavenly citizens. The gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf shapes our lives, or it ought to. Since Christ's victory earned forgiveness for us, we must live as forgiven people and people who forgive others. Since Christ's victory earned us freedom, we must live as free people, not enslaved by sin, not enslaved by guilt, as free people who also offer freedom and set other people free. Since Christ's victory earned us an eternal relationship with God, been reconciled to God through Christ, we must live as people who know and love God and who want others to know and love God too. That's our passport. That's our identity. This is who we are in Christ. We are citizens of the heavenly country. And together we are to live that out as a colony of heaven in the world. Now let's see what our text says specifically about the privileges and responsibilities of our gospel citizenship. Now notice again, and I'm going to return to that just so we don't forget. Notice again that these are communal privileges and communal responsibilities. They're not individual. Paul sees our citizenship as a partnership in the gospel. And this is a theme throughout the letter of the, to the Philippians. We are partners. We come together as citizens. And we work out the gospel implications together as citizens. So what are the responsibilities first? We are to stand firm in one spirit, Paul says. We are to stand firm in one spirit. That's our responsibility. Now, this is military language. We are to stand firm together as soldiers who refuse to leave their positions no matter how severe the battle is. We are to stand firm in one spirit together. It's not a call for individual to individual perseverance, but to communal, collective perseverance. Now, our citizenship is not a, about a country that we live in, but a country we are willing to defend. When we think about citizenship, it's not just where you live, it's not just where you go to church, it's not just that. It's the level of commitment that includes defending that, defending that country, defending that church, defending that community. And so Paul calls us to stand firm in one spirit, together. Now this responsibility of standing firm in unity is explained by two phrases in the text. Number one, we are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we stand firm, stand united in our defense and promotion of the gospel message. 
The faith here means the gospel, the body of belief that is connected to the gospel, what we know to be true, what defines our lives. Good citizens know what unites them. They know what's in the Constitution. They know and follow the customs reflecting the ideas of their country. I think there are two aspects here, two aspects of defending the gospel. We are to strive together internally for the faith of the gospel in the church and then also externally in our communities around us. Now, internally, we are to preserve the gospel. We're to defend it here in our own church, in our own community. You know that many churches that were once Christian and believed and understood and affirmed the gospel, affirmed the doctrines of our faith, affirmed the authority of Scripture, affirmed the message of reconciliation with God by grace, no longer do that. Now, what happened? They failed to defend the gospel. They failed to strive together for the faith of the gospel internally in their own congregations. And so eventually, the gospel disappeared. It is now gone in many churches. And so people gather, but they don't gather as citizens of the heavenly country anymore. Now they're bound by other things, by common interests or social agenda. They're no longer united by the gospel because they failed to defend it. A big part of Christian community is constantly rerooting ourselves in the gospel of Christ, relearning the gospel, recentering, recentering our lives on the gospel. We gather in church or gather online as it is now so that we won't forget. And so we are talking to each other, singing these songs together, reading scripture together, preaching together. Why? So we would not forget what actually unites us, what our citizenship is actually rooted in, what our passports reflect. But there's the outside element of striving together for the faith of the gospel, and that is that we are to share what we have with others. We're not just preserving this gospel and protecting it from the outside influence, we're also bringing it out and we're offering it to the world. Now, that happens in unity with other believers, too. This is not an individual pursuit. We don't go out by ourselves. But we are together in our connection to our community, in our conversations with other people. We are supporting each other in prayer. We are going out together. We are ministering to others together. Engage our neighbors and communicate the gospel to them in love. So that's the first phrase that explains our responsibility of standing firm side by side with one mind, one spirit. Now the second one, the second phrase that explains that responsibility is this. Paul calls us not to be frightened by our opponents. We are to stand united by facing the opposition with courage. The word here is used uh, of a horse getting startled. What Paul is saying is don't be skittish. Don't be jumpy. Don't panic when the world attacks. This is very important to understand that he calls the believers in Philippi to defend the gospel, to promote the gospel, but as they're doing that, not be surprised that there's opposition. 
and not be fearful of that, not be scared of that, not be skittish, not be jumpy, not panic when the opposition comes. In verse 30, Paul reminds the Philippians that they are engaged in the same conflict that Paul was engaged in when he was preaching the gospel at Philippi, when he was beaten and imprisoned there. He's still being persecuted now in Rome as he writes this letter. And evidently, the Philippian church is being persecuted too. And we're not sure what the source of that persecution is, but whatever it is, Paul says this is not surprising, so don't panic. The opposition is to be expected. Face it with courage. Persevere, stand firm by being courageous in the face of persecution. Now, the Bible is full of statements to that effect. 1 John 3.13, for example. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. The surprise of some Christians today that the culture at large does not understand them, does not like them, is rather surprising if you understand the gospel. We are a colony of heaven in a world that does not want to do, have anything to do with God or heaven. Why should it be surprising that the world would hate Christians? That's the most natural thing in the world. Because we are a colony, because we are different, our community is different, we live under different laws, we observe different customs, our values are different, we relate to each other and the world differently. We are ambassadors, we are colonizers of this world. Of course the world is going to push back. Of course they're going to oppose what we're doing. I want to be careful what I say here because I don't want to point to specific things too much, okay? But I am disturbed and I'm discouraged by how many Christians get upset about what's happening around as if it shouldn't be happening. Of course it should be happening. Of course the world is against us. And it's upsetting to see how many Christians give in to fear and are just looking for another theory to explain what's happening. We don't need any other theories. We know the world hates us. This is a normal experience for a Christian. We don't need a conspiracy to explain what's happening. All we need is go back to Scripture and say, we should not be surprised that there's opposition to the gospel colony in this world. However it comes, and it comes in different ways and in waves often and in cycles, and it comes from different sources. But this is our constant reality. What is surprising is experiencing a season when the world does not hate us. That is very surprising. And that should lead to introspection. It should lead to examine us and say, are we really that different if the world doesn't hate us? And so as we're going through this crisis now, are you fearful? Are you skittish, jumpy, panicky? Lots of things can happen to a Christian. But because of our citizenship, because of the responsibilities of a heavenly citizen, we are to face opposition, to face persecution, to face suffering without fear, expecting that it would come, relying on the strength of the Holy Spirit. Now, what are the privileges 
of our gospel citizenship. If responsibilities, our responsibilities are to stand firm by defending the gospel internally and promoting it externally, by not being jumpy and skittish in the face of opposition. That's our responsibilities. That's how we're supposed to act as Christians, as Christian citizens. What about our privileges? What about the benefits? For example, the Philippians, Roman citizens at Philippi were exempt from certain taxes. This is a great benefit to be a citizen, a Roman citizen at Philippi. What are our privileges? Well, verse 29 explains that, and this is a little surprising. Verse 29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted, meaning it's been given by grace, same word group, it's been given to you by grace as a gift by God that we should believe in Christ, that's one privilege, but that we should also suffer for his sake, that's the other privilege. Two benefits, two privileges of gospel citizenship are faith in Christ and suffering for Christ. Now first, our faith. Did you know that the only way you can become a Christian or a gospel citizen is if a gospel passport is granted to you by grace? No one can make a case for becoming a Christian. Our faith is a gift of God to us. Now let me take you maybe to a passage you don't expect me to go to. This is Psalm 87, a beautiful psalm that speaks about citizenship, that speaks about where we belong. Psalm 87, verses 3 and following. Glorious things of you are spoken, or city of God. Psalmist talks about Jerusalem, the city that God picked for his people, for his temple, for his presence, for his Messiah to come. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Now, this is an incredible passage, especially in the Old Testament. Because it, gets, it goes against the common idea of God's people that we are the only people that God loves. The psalm proclaims that this city of God, Jerusalem, Zion, that God feels is so special to him that he has designated for his people, actually is a city to which all these nations will come. The Philistines, the ancient enemies of Israel, will go there. And what's even more incredible here, God says, I will register your names. I will record it in a way that would mean that you were born here. So the most Israelite city, the most Jewish city, Jerusalem, will actually be considered the homeland of all these other pagan nations. What God is saying is that no one really belongs in this city. 
Nobody can claim that because I was born here, I belong here, and all the benefits are mine. He says, I will make it so that anyone whom I call can claim the status of a Jerusalem citizen. They will receive the passport from me. I will register their name in my book. If the Lord treats his enemies by grace, this is, this is how he does it, because he treats his enemies by grace, anybody who is now welcomed into his family, welcomed into his kingdom, is there only because God is gracious. Jesus died for the ungodly, for his enemies, for those who crucified him, praying for his enemies on the cross for their forgiveness. And so all of us, any of us, any Christian anywhere who can claim the benefits of gospel citizenship has been made a Christian, has been welcomed into God's family, God's kingdom, by sheer grace. Nobody deserves to have a gospel passport. And yet we do, because God gives it to us. It's been granted to us. It's been given to us by grace to belong in his kingdom. That's one great benefit, because if it's been given to us by grace, it's not going to be taken from us. And secondly, the second benefit, this one is surprising. It's our suffering. We have been granted to suffer for his name, for Christ's name. Paul considers suffering, especially persecution for Christ's name, as a benefit, as a privilege of our heavenly citizenship. Now, he was not the only one who thought that. When Peter and the others were arrested and beaten by the council, by the Sanhedrin, they rejoiced. In Acts 5, verse 41, we read, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Many Christians around the world today who suffer for Christ's sake consider it a privilege, consider it joy to be able to do that. Why? Paul explains the benefit of suffering for Christ later in the same letter. Look at Philippians 3, verse 10. Paul says that he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So what drives Paul, as the one who's been welcomed into God's family by grace, what drives him is wanting to know Christ and wanting to become like him. And that happens through his suffering. To share in the sufferings of Christ, in the persecution for Christ's sake, in whatever difficulty or trial you're experiencing as a Christian, to share in that you means to share in Christ's sufferings, means to share in who Christ is, means to know him and to become like him. It is in our suffering for Christ's sake that we know Christ and become like him. And if we are really Christ followers, this is what we want more than anything else in the world. And then our suffering becomes a great privilege. I wonder if that's how you see your life. If you get the honor to suffer for Christ's sake, do you consider it a great privilege and a way to know him and to become like him? Well, finally, 
Let's get to our last point. Let's talk about our power as gospel citizens. We'll finish by looking at verse 28, where Paul says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Paul says that after he talks about the responsibilities of standing firm and not being fearful and striving side by side, he says this is a clear sign to them, to those who oppose you, to the persecutors of their destruction, but of your salvation that comes from God. Now, what is the sign, or we can translate it as the proof, the evidence that those who oppose Christ in his gospel await destruction, and those who have sided with Christ await ultimate salvation? Now, here's, I have to go to the experts on this, because it's hard for me to understand how this works out. So I go to the New Testament Greek scholar Bill Mounds, who explains. But then Paul says, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. What does this refer to? What is the sign that, that, that we are being saved? What is the sign that they will be destroyed? This refers not to any one word, but to both ideas, striving side by side and not being frightened. When we persevere in our faith, when we are not frightened by the spiritual opposition all around us, people will see it as an indication that they stand condemned before Christ, but also as an indication that we are being saved. Weird as it sounds, it's the gospel truth. To those of us who believe and trust the Lord, who stand firm in the face of trials, our confidence is an indication that we are being saved. But to those who are not part of the faith, our steadfastness is an indication that, they, that, that we are different and that they are perishing. So what this text says is that as the world looks at us, as we suffer, as we persevere as a gospel community, as gospel citizens, as a colony of heaven here, as we respond to varial trials, based on how we respond, if we respond courageously, if we respond without fear, if we respond by persevering in our own faith and defense of the gospel, that, all of that, becomes evidence, becomes a sign, a clear sign to the world that we are being saved and they are perishing. Now we find a similar dynamic in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 16. Listen to what Paul says. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. What we do in a crisis not just individually, but as a community, as a church, as the church, as a colony of heaven in the world, can confirm our salvation and can confirm the world's condemnation. Friends, what we talk about, what we are concerned about, our attitudes, our perseverance, our joy, our courage, all of that is a sign to the world. When you think about the Christian's response to the current pandemic, 
doesn't declare our heavenly citizenship to the world. Doesn't draw others out of destruction and into salvation through Christ. I'm not talking about the individual Christian's response. I'm talking about the collective response of the church. The church as a whole. Can we say as the church that we are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by our opponents? If this is what we're showing to the world, our perseverance, our steadfastness, our reliance on the gospel, our holding on to our identity as people who have heavenly passports, people who persevere and are not surprised, not skittish, not jumpy that there is, a, there is persecution and opposition. If this is what we are portraying to the world as a colony in the midst of this larger world that is perishing, we're saying we are with God. God has granted this to us to believe in Him and to suffer for Him. And if this is what we're portraying, the world can either join us and they can say they're right. And through that, find their own salvation. Or they can say they're wrong and we don't care and thus confirm their own destruction. But that happens based on the communication, based on the declaration that comes through how we deal with this crisis. I'll finish with this story. In 320 AD, this may be a familiar story to some, this is a great story from the early church. 320 AD, in a city of Sebast, which is now in modern Turkey, 40 Roman soldiers refused to offer incense to Caesar as Lord. And this is a common thing during those times when Roman citizens and inhabitants of the Roman Empire were, were forced to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord and and as long as they affirmed him and, and, and related to him as the supreme ruler, as the Lord, as God himself, then they were fine to worship any other gods alongside. But Christians couldn't do that. So Christians would refuse to offer incense, to offer sacrifices to Caesar as Lord. And sometimes it became a big problem. So these 40 Roman soldiers were singled out. Out of their legion, they were stripped naked and put in a frigid lake at night. Tubs of warm water were prepared on the shore, and all they had to do was to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, and they could come out and be warm and, in fact, survive. Otherwise, they were sure to freeze to death. They started praying and asking God to give them strength to persevere. They prayed that all 40 of them would stand together striving side by side together and not given into the temptation to, to go along with the world and to reject their Savior. They sang, they started singing. They sang, we are 40 Christian soldiers ready to die for Christ. Finally, one of them couldn't take it any longer and came out and denounced Christ. The remaining soldiers kept singing, but now their song was different. Now they were singing, we are 39 Christian soldiers ready to die for Christ. Still coming together, still standing shoulder to shoulder, still expressing their allegiance to Christ alone as their Lord. 
But in just a few minutes, the song changed back to, we are 40 Christian soldiers ready to die for Christ. Because one of the guards, who's supposed to guard them, supposed to not allow them to come out unless they renounced Christ, so impressed with the courage of the Christians that he himself took off his clothes, got into the water, and filled the space that was left open by the defector, declaring his new allegiance to Lord Jesus. Eventually, all 40 soldiers died, and they are now celebrated as Christian martyrs. In fact, some churches have a special day to remember the 40 Christian martyrs of Sebast. And this story and their lives inspire us today to stand firm in one spirit as citizens of the gospel. Because what we do, how we behave, gives a sign, a clear sign, clear evidence to those who are watching that we are being saved and they are perishing. And through that, there's an invitation to anyone who is watching that they too can come and join us they too can receive a heavenly passport by grace from our Lord. The sign of our perseverance in the midst of trials, that's not a new sign. We didn't invent that. We're simply imitating. We're simply doing what Christ has done for us. What is the sign? What is the main Christian sign? What is the main Christian symbol? It is the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus persevered. Jesus stood firm. He did not falter, but died for his people. And his cross became a sign to us of our salvation and to those who reject him of their destruction. What does the cross say about you? Does it assure you that because Jesus died for you, you belong in his kingdom now? Or does it assure you that you stand condemned before God for your sins. If sin is such a big deal that the Son of God died, it's only through his death that you can be saved. So I call you today, if you're not a Christian, to take your place among us, to join our heavenly colony, to claim your passport by faith and to proclaim that Jesus is Lord.